find myself, uh, Evan, uh, uh, Tim, or uh, I think Joey. Yeah, Joey's back there. Hey, Joey. <laughs> uh, and a couple of our elders, and we will be uh, happy to pray for you. And really, there's a lot of people here. They'll just say, hey, I'll be happy to pray for you right now kind of thing. Uh, so what we do now on the first Sunday of every month is we have a time of uh, somebody from our church coming up and sharing a little bit about what it looks like when God gets his grip on you. <laughs> and uh, and that's why we call it Faith Prince. Uh, now this will be, uh, let's see, we'll have one more coming up in September we're planning on. And then we're going to switch to first Sundays being a missions focus. But we will return back to testimonies uh, late next spring and continue through the summer. So I want to encourage you to, you and God to go do something amazing. Uh, between that time, and then you can tell us that story uh, next uh, next season. Uh, but for now, I want to invite my brother in Christ and my friend, Chris Romanenko, to come up and share with us. Is the mic on? Oh, wow. For the number of times that I'm running the board, I don't get a mic in my hand very often. So my testimony is a little bit different. Um, I, or different than, I would say, most people's big, powerful testimony. Um, I always like to start off with that we all know Paul's story. Um, he was killing Christians, hunting followers, bringing men and women back to Jerusalem in chains. Um, to meet who knows what kind of death. And one day, as depicted in Acts 9, <clears throat> a light showed down around him and he fell to the ground. The voice of God came to him. He became blind, but he came to faith. And while many people know this story and identify with it, I do not. Um, I very much always felt that Second um, Timothy uh, 1.5, Paul says, I remember your genuine faith. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother and your mother, and I know the same faith continues strong in you. This is a story I know and I understand. I never had a come-to-Jesus moment um, with a bright light or a booming voice of God. I grew up in faith, and I had a strong community around me, and I was able to stand on the shoulders of those who had walked with Christ for a lifetime. The only problem with this, and I feel where many of my friends got lost, it's easy to miss, miss owning your faith. To be, it's easy to miss owning your faith to become stagnant and starve while you are blind to the feast of grace and love around you. It was my sixth grade year. I lost two grandparents. My mother was diagnosed with pre-leukemia. Our lives would be turned upside down. Um, traveling to and from Denver to the hospital to visit our mom, living with friends and eating whatever showed up on our doorstep from the local churches. I prayed, I went to church, Bible study, and I believed in God. I didn't understand how faith and my mom being sick were compatible. Towards the end of treatment and starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, one doctor messed up. One doctor made a decision so poor, it almost undid three years of treatment a successful bone marrow transplant, and our mom getting to come home. This is the, f the point that my faith became my own. For what I still see as a miracle of events, she lived. She went from an A-negative blood type to an O-negative, and to this day has the DNA of a British man running through her veins. I don't care what your relationship is to science, there has to be a miracle in that somewhere. This new personal faith carried me through high school, and I was involved in a church, a couple youth groups, FCA, and several Bible studies. Most of my relationships and a huge chunk of my time were centered around my faith. College was a much different time of my life. It's not like I walked away from my faith. I didn't walk away from God, and I still knew that God loved me. However, I went to school of mines. I got busy. Um, busy with school, busy with homework, clubs, design teams, labs, jobs. This is something my faith wasn't prepared for. One year turned to two, and pretty soon three years had gone by without much more than an occasional Bible study.
I had friends with strong faith, but I was busy with important things. I didn't have time to go to church. One, time, one summer after I led a team in a national design build competition, I wasted a Sunday and couldn't shake this feeling that I should have gone to church. This place I hadn't been to, been to in years, I missed. It was that week that I ran into Jamin downtown, invited me to Common Ground. I'd been invited many times before from my two closest friends, but it was this time that it stuck. Little did I know how hungry my busy life was leaving me. It took an amazing men's group, a little worship, and a lot of time with Colby, Jamin, Jake, and Brian, but my faith started growing again. I'm a firm believer that whichever relationships you dedicate your time to are the ones that will grow. I always understood that people would come and go from my life, but I never had the intention to do that with God. Suddenly, my faith was showing fruit again. In the stress of college and big life events after graduation, I had a community who was there for me. I could feel peace, joy, and love all throughout my life. The world becomes a less scary place when you're focused on so much bigger than yourself, something so much bigger than yourself. The peace I didn't know was missing in my life, the Holy Spirit. I didn't know I was missing the nudges and blatant shoves to do good. Seeing a person needing help or the feeling that a friend needs a phone call become, became much more apparent in my life. When you bring yourself closer to God and prepare your heart to listen, he will move your life in ways you never imagined. One example is starting a company from nothing while just asking the question of how would Jesus do this? Another is looking back at the hardest relationship of my life, the most fighting, tears, hurt, and hard conversations, wondering why I pushed through while constantly feeling that it wasn't time for it to end. Through the grace of God, it turned into the most rewarding and fulfilling relationship I've ever known, and I'm excited to experience in a lifetime of marriage. With this, I have two final points that I come back to multiple times a day. The first, God is good. This is his character. Through ups and downs, know that he is good. Some of my lowest points were the start to my greatest blessings. You can't see the big picture and therefore must have faith that all things will be good in his timing. The second, God is God and I am not. I will be one of the first to say that I question God. I wrestle with him. I bring him my anger, my frustration, my sadness. I question what he does. But at the end of the day, I have to accept that he has it all under his control. Who am I to question his plan? He is beyond time. I am not. He is everywhere. I am not. He controls the moon and the stars, and I try to keep my yard under control. He is endless grace. I struggle to forgive. He loves unconditionally, and I still don't like some people. But I love good news, and with that I will continue the struggle and try every day to look a little bit more like Christ. I am young, but I still haven't found a greater calling to follow. Don't leave. Don't leave. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we now transition into God's word? Um, so, God, we just thank you. We just thank you for the journey that Chris has been on. And we just thank you for this word that he shared with us, um, for how we see the ways that you have built him up in his faith. And we just thank you for the opportunity to be built up by him. And would his story also just um, stir up many of us uh, seeing the similar life situations, um, seeing the need to, to go deeper with you, to not remain stagnant, but to own our faith. God, would you just encourage us and stir up that within each and every one of us, that we would be a people who see as he has come to the realization that you are good, uh, you are in control, um, even when we're not, even when the circumstances aren't. So we just thank you. We thank you for this testimony. And we just pray your blessing over Chris's life, that you continue to make him someone who just sees you in places where others don't and who has the courage and the ability to speak that out and to call it out. And so we just thank you. We thank you for his servant heart, for all that he does here at Common Ground Church. Uh, would you empower him in his work, in his relationships, and in all that he does? And God, now as we turn to your word, uh, would you do that same exact work in our hearts? So we love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. Thanks for doing that. Chris is awesome. Chris, I, you guys might not know all that Chris does, but he does a lot in and around this place to make this church family run smoothly and survive. So we really appreciate all of that. Um, and it's now um, that we're going to transition into our teaching time. Um, where we have been going through a series we're calling Dear Friends and Fellow Workers, going through three different letters in the New Testament, Philemon, Titus, and Jude, in order to really learn from God's word of what is he calling us to be as a church and how do we overcome some of the biggest challenges that we face um, as a church. And over and over, we've just seen God's grace, God's mercy, and just a picture of the gospel being centered to what we do as being what's really important for us as a church. Um, And we are nearing the end of this series where we're now in the book of Jude, it's a short little book, one one page in your Bible, depending on your font size, I suppose. Um, but we're spending four weeks really trying to dive into it, really trying to pull out as much as we possibly can out of this little book of Jude. And today we're going to continue in that. We're going to continue in the book of Jude, which, as I mentioned, it was written uh, by Jesus' younger brother here. And he's writing to a church, essentially sounding the alarm about this group of false teachers Um, A group of greedy, selfish, self-centered people who have come into the church um, and are now harming the people in it and the church and taking advantage of this body of believers. Uh, And Jude is very clear about how he feels about it. We talked about some of the really inflammatory language that he uses. Um, He's very clear that what they are doing is not what the church is for. Uh, that this is not the purpose of the body of Christ. Um, Because, you see, we believe that the church is this community, this group of people that were birthed by the Holy Spirit, right, and who are charged with being fruitful and multiplying through making disciples of all nations, through making disciples of Jesus everywhere that we go. Um, But the reality is that all throughout history and even in our lives, we can lose sight of this purpose, and we can lose sight of really the purpose of the church. We can lose sight of the fact that we exist to glorify God, to make disciples. And that losing sight of this is really dangerous. And that's essentially what the book of Jude is about, is here is how serious God takes it when people lose sight of it and end up causing so much damage because of it. And this idea of of really losing sight of why the church exists and what our focus should be is not uncommon. Um, It's something that Christians and churches struggle with. It's also something that organizations and individuals go through all the time. The reality that the founder of our faith had a purpose for us, and we can often kind of go off the rails into our own ideas. This is something that we're constantly combating just as humans. Um, And it's something that, if you've noticed, even businesses and organizations can struggle with. So I brought you a few examples, uh, one of which is you've probably heard of Colgate toothpaste, right? Familiar? You see Colgate, you think of toothpaste? Well, it was in the 1980s that they actually decided that we want to do more than toothpaste. We feel like we could sell more products than this. And so they started trying to make frozen dinners. Uh, Believe it or not, they didn't sell very well because when you see Colgate, you don't think beef lasagna, you think minty fresh. Even though it didn't have minty fresh in it, people are just thinking like, ah, that's not the purpose of Colgate. We don't know about that. Uh, Frito-Lay, which when you think of Frito-Lay, you probably think about corn chips, right? Salty chips. Well, it was in 1998 that they tried to branch out and do lemonade. Um, And again, similar story. People thought like, hey, you guys are a chip brand. Uh, We don't want to buy your lemonade, even though it was probably good lemonade. It's like, maybe you guys should stick with what your purpose is. Uh, The Sturgis rally began, you guys, right? Sturgis happened. Shout out responses, but we all know, like, what are bikers known for? Like, what are, especially Harley riders, like, what are they known for? Crashing. Uh, Not the answer I was looking for, but it's true, it's true. Petting the fluffy cows, they do that too. What are bikers known for? Come on. You guys, we know this, yeah. Leather, leather jackets, yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, revving engines. They're known for smelling good, right? Bikers smell good, which is why Harley-Davidson actually sells perfume uh, for women. So uh, I don't know if you think about smelling good uh, as something that Harley riders are known for, but Harley tried to sell this product. The scent is Hot Road. Uh, I don't know what that smells like, but when I hear Hot Road, it doesn't exactly pique my interest to be like, yeah, this is exactly what women want to smell like. But Harley essentially is like, yeah, this is what we're going to go for. Um, To get onto a more serious note, you know about... Harvard University, right? Harvard was founded in 1636 by Puritan Christians. Originally, they only employed Christian professors. And their stated focus, their stated mission statement was that we are to instruct students 
who will know God and be like Jesus Christ. That's Harvard's mission statement. It still is to this day. But today, the school uh, has very little ties to their Christian roots. And this is the person that they employed just about two years ago as their chief chaplain. Um, and he's an atheist. He doesn't believe in God at all. And so just look at the face of that guy. He just knows, like, he's not going to have to do an ounce of work uh, in his life because you know, you go to a chaplain who doesn't believe in God, and you're like, hey, you know, I'm struggling I'm in my faith. I'm trying to look for ways to improve my faith. What's he going to say? Like, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't believe it. Here's like a workout routine and a restaurant uh, recommendation, uh, you know, or like you go to him for prayer. What's he going to say? Like, ah, sorry, not going to pray for you. This guy's got it made in the shade. He knows. Uh, but obviously you can see Harvard has gone off of the focus a little bit. If their mission, if their vision was to make students who know God and Jesus Christ, Something has gone seriously wrong, right? They've lost focus of their intended purpose, essentially. And this is what Jude is addressing, that it can happen to us too, that we can lose sight of actually what church is for, of what our faith is for, what we are all about, what faith in Jesus and salvation actually means. And the big issues that Jude saw were numerous. Uh, He addressed a bunch of them. Um, There was rampant sexuality. There was abusing of God's grace. There was pride that we talked about last week. Um, And then one of the other big things that we're going to look at today is this idea of greed and just self-centeredness. This greed and selfishness and viewing church as just a means to that end of fulfilling ourselves and getting what we can get out of it. And losing sight that our attention in church is to be on glorifying God through the extending of God's kingdom. Um, But often we can make it about ourselves instead. I mean, this really is a huge problem. And this is kind of a delusion that we face just in this generation of Christians who are alive today of viewing church as being all about us, right? Of the purpose of church is to serve me. The purpose of my faith is what God can give to me all the time. And so oftentimes what this looks like for Christians today is, you know, we stay connected to things. We stay connected to churches as long as it serves us, as long as it serves our purposes. Um, but if it doesn't, then that's when we bounce. We go look for things that serve our purposes a little more. Um, and instead of asking, you know, what do I owe God? How can I serve him? What is my role in God's plan? Oftentimes the questions that we ask instead, I think we have to admit, are what is God going to do for me? What do these people have to offer me? And what is God's role in, in my plan? What is God's role in what I want to do? And we can view church in this light. And I think we have to face the very real dangers of this. Because when we lose sight of things, we might think like, okay, well, I can just be off a little bit. But one of the things it talks about in Hebrews chapter 3 is just how our hearts can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Um, that to just give sin a little bit of an inch is never really what we're doing. That, that sin can actually come in and harden our hearts. One final example before we get to the text of someone who's really lost sight of their purpose is, of course, the famous example of Lance Armstrong, right? Like when Lance Armstrong started cycling, um, he didn't get into it thinking like, you know, I just can't wait to inject my body with all these different things. You know, like I'm going to get, you know, hormones and this and that and, you know, I'll live forever. I'll be embalmed forever. Uh, I don't think that was his plan. When he started, he just wanted to be the world's greatest cyclist, right? Um, But then... He got connected to some people who could do some things to him that would really help him out. Did those things. Nobody noticed. Worked out really well. So he did a few more things. Helped out more. Uh, Nobody noticed a little more. And eventually Lance Armstrong kind of became the leader of a doping ring within cycling. Won all these different competitions and all these different medals as he was cheating. And he had an interview after he was convicted of all this, and the interviewer asked him, you know, at the time, didn't it feel wrong? No, he replied. The interviewer pressed him again and said, did you ever feel bad about it? No, he said. And so the interviewer was like, well, did you feel in any way that you were cheating? And he responded, no. And then he he said this. He says, you know, I went and I looked up the definition of cheating, (laughs) which if you have to look up the definition of cheating, I think you're probably cheating. Uh, But he's like, I went and I looked up the definition of cheating. Um, And the definition is to gain an advantage on a rival or a foe. And I didn't view it that way. I viewed it as leveling the playing field. And so this for me was just part of the job. And so he, he didn't believe that what he was doing was cheating. He had kind of given license to it and the deceitfulness of sin can come in and harden heart. And what started with just Losing sight on your purpose a little bit eventually turned into one of the biggest scandals in all sports history here. And so this is some of the danger of just losing sight of our purpose. Sin creeps in, 
And especially with the context of Jude, the sin can creep in to cause us to make our faith, make church, make our relationships all about ourselves. And so Jude, Jude has some strong language to address that. Let's see what he says here in verse 10. We're going to read in verse 10. We're going to make our way through this little section. As we've been going through, Jude kind of has these list of three uh, different problems that are going on. And then he has this list of comparisons to what they're like. And then he has solutions for us. But we're going to look at what Jude says about this selfish, greedy attitude that has crept into this church that he is addressing here. We're in verse 10. He says, but these people, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. He goes on to say that these people, there are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. There are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. And then jump down to verse 16, because I just want to look at this that we're looking at as well. In verse 16, he says, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others, not for the good of others, for their own advantage for their own advantage. And so Jude here, he's addressing this greed, this self-centeredness, this loss of sight for what the purpose of the church is supposed to be. And as we talked about, Jude uses all these different Old Testament examples. He just cites these stories, kind of expects us to know it. But it's really helpful that he does that because then we can go into these Old Testament stories and we can see exactly what he was trying to get at, what exactly this lesson is for us. And this example that we're going to look at today is the story of Balaam. The story of Balaam, he says that they here in verse 11, that they rushed into profit into Balaam's error. Essentially, they were out for money. They were teaching for money. They were seeing the church as something that they could just personally gain from. And the story of Balaam, um, it's a fascinating story. It comes to us from Numbers chapter 22. It spans about 10 different chapters there, actually. There's a lot that goes on in that story. But Balaam was kind of a weird guy. Uh, we're told in Numbers chapter 22 that Balaam was a, a diviner or a soothsayer, which is literally translated as he was a seer. Uh, he seemed to be able to see spiritual things that others couldn't. Um, and he was a prophet. He talked directly with God, essentially, which gets us into a bit of a dilemma that we really have to wrestle with because he was pretty infamous for being a bad prophet and for doing evil things. Uh, but yet God still spoke to him. God was still gracious to him. God still used this very evil man. And I think we wrestle with that at times. But I think the simple answer that I always go to is, like, would God use an evil person? And I don't think he has any other options. Uh, and so God spoke directly with this guy. And so he was this prophet who was living at the time when the children of Israel, they were coming out of the wilderness, and they were about to enter the promised land, and they were looking to conquer the promised land. And so as they were making their way towards Moab, actually the king of Moab, Balak, comes to Balaam and essentially says, Hey, the people of Israel are so numerous. They're encroaching on my territory. If we don't do something about it, they're going to eat all of our food. They're going to kill us. Something bad is going to happen. And so he hires Balaam, the prophet, to curse the people of Israel. He wants to curse them. And he says, I want you to curse them so they don't come after us. And so what Balaam does, Balaam says, well, I'm not going to commit to it yet. Let me go ask God if I'm able to do this. He goes, he says, hey, God, can I go with these people and curse the children of Israel? God says, no, you may not. <laughs> Those are my people. So Balaam goes back to Balak, and he's like, hey, sorry, God won't let me do it. You know, I want to, but God won't let me do it. Uh, then Balak, the king, says, well, here's the deal. I'll pay you all of this money if you're willing to do it. So Balaam goes, okay, goes back to God. God, can I please do it? I'm going to get so rich if I curse the people. And God essentially says, he doesn't say you can curse them. He says, all right, you can go with these people. But when you go with them, only do exactly what I command you to do. So Balaam's like, yes, I'm going to get so rich. He's on his way there. He's on his way to curse the children of Israel. And it's when he's going there that we have the famous story of Balaam and his donkey, where God essentially sent 
the angel of the Lord to assassinate Balaam on the way, and the donkey could see the angel. Apparently donkeys can see angels. That might be helpful information. I don't know. Uh, But it can see the angel and dives off the road to get out of the way so that the angel can't assassinate Balaam. And then the angel comes onto the path in sneaky different places two more times on his journey to go curse the people of Israel. And every single time, the donkey essentially saves Balaam before the last time when the donkey pins Balaam up against the wall so that the angel can't kill him. And Balaam there starts beating the donkey and saying, what are you doing? You are the worst. You are embarrassing me in front of all these rich guys who are going to pay me. Like, What is going on? The donkey turns to Balaam and says, why are you hitting me? I'm trying to save my life. Balaam, without blinking, talks back to the donkey. Um, He says, like, no, you're embarrassing me in front of the rich guys. What are you doing? And it's at that moment that we're told that Balaam had his eyes opened by God. And he could see the angel of the Lord right there. And the angel of the Lord says to Balaam, like, yeah, why are you hitting your donkey? Like, animal abuse is totally not cool. And I was going to kill you, and the donkey saved you. He essentially says, say your sorry to the donkey, say thank you. And here's the deal. I won't kill you, but remember, do only what God tells you as you're on this journey here. So Balaam goes on his way. After this assassination attempt by an angel, he gets up to the mountain where King Balak wants him to curse the children of Israel. And he goes up there and he opens his mouth to curse the children of Israel. And only blessing comes out. Right? So he's trying to get up there and he goes, you beautiful people, God loves you so much. And he says all these like amazing prophecies. King Balak at this point is furious What are you doing? Why are you blessing them with God's protection when I want you to curse them? He's like, look, I'll pay you more money. Is that what you want? You want more money? And the guy keeps, like, raising the payment for Balaam here. So he keeps trying. He tries three times to curse the children of Israel, and God doesn't let him. He just pours blessing out of his mouth instead. So as you can tell, the king is very mad, very angry, and he says, "I, I don't care what it takes. I will give you a blank check if you curse these people. So what Balaam does is he goes, well, I don't want to lose this money. He says, but I can't speak a curse. So essentially he says, you want to curse these people? Find your most beautiful women and send them in the camp to seduce the men and make them worship your God, Baal. And so the Moabites, they sent women into the camp, dressed up, ready to go, probably thinking this is going to be easy work. And it was. Um, The guys were seduced. They fell for it. And then in the meantime, the ladies are like, oh, well, we can worship your God on this day. And then why don't you come and worship my God on the other day? And the men are like, oh, yeah, okay. And they did. And the people of Israel worshipped Baal, worshipped another God other than Yahweh, even though they knew they weren't supposed to. And what happened is then a plague came into the camp and killed thousands, killed thousands. But Balaam made off with a huge payday. And he cursed the children of Israel, for money. He was a prophet after prophet, it's often said. And so what Jude is telling us here is that we need to be aware of this temptation. We need to be aware of just how deceitful sin is, where we might feel like we're the people who can see it all. We're the people who trust God and know. But even this guy, Balaam, the great seer, he couldn't see what his true assignment was, what a prophet should be doing. He was essentially blinded by greed. And he actually needed a donkey to be the one to point that out for him. And so I think we have to pause as he gives this example and not just think about, you know, the greedy prosperity gospel people out there, but think about the situations in which we could lose sight of our purpose. We could lose sight in the purpose of the church where we might make things maybe not about getting rich and about greed, but maybe where we could just make our faith make our relationships, make church about what we could get out of it. Because I think we can lose sight of the assignment that we have as well. And Jude has strong language about that, about losing sight of the purpose of faith, the purpose of church. Because the purpose isn't us and just to grow us up. But what Balaam needed to see is like, hey, these other people that I'm going to get rich like on the backs of, these are God's people. These are God's people. And I think fundamentally that's the mindset that we should have as well. That's the vision that we should have as well. Because Jude continues in verse 12 where he has this whole section of similes, of examples from nature, where he's comparing what they're doing to these things. 
Um, and he says, you know, they're hidden reefs, waterless clouds, all these different things. And this is essentially his inflammatory language as a wake-up call for losing sight of God's purpose. And it begins with this idea of a, a hidden reef. He says, they are hidden reefs at your love feast, right? And the love feast, this was the corporate gathering of the church back then where, where the church would meet and they would take communion. And the purpose was fellowship and unity and worship because the church is to be done around fellowship. And unity. And he's saying, hey, these people are there, and they're like reefs. They're like rocks under the water where you think it's smooth sailing. You're just there to worship God. You're like ready to take communion. You're ready to worship and be there in fellowship. And they're about to, they're just wanting to grab you. They're wanting to like take you, share you, share with you like their latest revelation or their latest project and to get you on board with what they are doing. Not about Jesus. Not about what it is that God is calling the church to. And Jude is warning them that, hey, if you allow this to take place, like before you know it, your mind will be completely off of Jesus and you'll be wrapped up in their self-centeredness with them. And pretty soon you'll just be following them and giving them all of your money. And he's warning them that they're like a hidden reef here. And he says that they feast among you without fear that they're feasting with you without fear, that essentially these false teachers, they're just like mocking the Christian gathering. They don't think they're going to face any consequences. They don't think they'll face any accountability. They're acting like they're serving people, but they're not. They're just, they're feasting, feeding themselves, feasting off of you. And he compares them to, to waterless clouds, essentially saying like, you know, they're floating obviously on every wind and wave of doctrine. Um, but also it seems like they just seem to go from church to church to church offering no one anything, right? It's like in the spiritual drought in which we live, like we're just always looking for refreshment. We're looking for that refreshment. And in Judaism, water is often compared as a simile to teaching. Like we're looking for teaching. We're looking for the real gospel. And these people, they come up on the horizon like a cloud and we get excited that maybe this water will fall. But it's like, yeah, they're empty. And then they just float on by without giving us anything so it's like we need strength we need encouragement they seem to offer it we've got nothing to offer nothing to offer us and this is something we have to be very aware of Um, it was eugene peterson the great theologian and pastor who said just how often the church can get off track with what we should be about and pastors can operate more like ceos just running an organization and doing all these things than than like a shepherd feeding the sheep And, and eugene peterson he goes at this and he says That ability to feed is what gives you ability to lead. That these people who are just feasting them for themselves, not feeding the people here. That they're selfish shepherds here, essentially. Then he says that they are like waves casting up foam. Casting up foam. Have you seen like big outbreaks of sea foam before? It looks like a lot of fun. Right When you're a little kid, you go to the beach and you see the foam kicked up by the waves. You're like, oh, this is going to be great. And you start playing in it. And then it just smells like fish, right? And it leaves you like grimy and green and dirty. And it's essentially like, yeah, sea foam, it looks so nice. It looks so great. And it just leaves this like yucky residue and it's disgusting. And this lady is having fun in it, but she's going to have to give her dogs like a serious bath after that. Um, but that's what he's comparing it to. He's like, man, it just looks so nice and it looks so fun. And then you get close to it, and it's really disgusting. He also compares them to wandering stars, right? That they're wandering stars. Back then, you had to navigate by the stars if you're out on the sea. And you're hoping that the stars stay in the same place, right? If a star is just wandering, moving around, well, okay, that's going to be tough to navigate with, right? That essentially, they like show up on the scene, and you think you're orienting yourself north. You think you're orienting yourself to your purpose. And then it just wisps off to nowhere, right? Essentially, like these people, they don't seem to actually be leading anywhere. They're just seeing what they can get. They're seeing what followers will jump on board with them. And if not, they're out. They're gone, right? No commitment, no deep relationship, no consistency, just whipping on by. And Jude uses all these different examples from nature to describe what can happen if we lose sight of our purpose of loving God loving others in the church, that if we lose sight and if we make it all about ourselves, man, he's got harsh language for that. Then we read verse 16, where he says that these, these are grumblers, malcontents, 
or some uh, versions say fault finders, right? Following their own sinful desires, they're loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism or, you know, uh, like buttering up others to gain advantage for their own advantage. And this word that he uses for fault finders in the NIV or for malcontents here, this is actually like a stock actor in a Greek play. Um, where back in Greek comedy, they had certain characters that would be in just about every single play. We've heard of the hypocrites, right? The hypocrites are the ones who wear the masks. Well, the Miss Femoroi, or the fault finders, this was a character that was in almost every Greek comedy. And essentially, this was the one who finds a problem with everything. This is the one who complains about everything. You think about the guys in, like, the Muppets who just sat up in the corner and just found something to complain about every single time. This is what these fault finders were in Greek comedy. It's like the person who complains just about everything. It's like if their friend gives them a car as a gift, they go, yeah, but the AC doesn't work very well. Um, Or if they find, you know, $100 on the street, they go, yeah, but I'm $1,000 in debt. $100 doesn't really help. And this is these characters, these grumpy guys who just find fault with everything. They don't like anyone. The hero does something amazing, and they're like, yeah, but you didn't save the whole world. And the reality is that when we lose sight of the purpose of church, we can become these guys. And our faces look just like that when we say it, where we start to just complain. It's like, you know, like, ah, worship's too loud. I'm smarter than everyone in my small group. No one has anything to offer me. Or like, why wouldn't I just listen to Tim Mackey and John Piper online? They're so much better than Evan. And just like always looking for faults, always being quick to look over the fence and see how much greener every other community and every other home is. And he says, when we lose sight of the purpose, when we lose sight of Christ, These are the people we become. We look just like these goofy complainers from Greek comedies here. And this is relevant to Jude because as we looked at the beginning of the book a few weeks ago, it seems like people were complaining about grace. It's like Jesus had saved them. Jesus forgave your sins. But then they still wanted to abuse grace and use it as license for sin as if to say, like, Jesus might have saved me but why does he still put rules on me? Why can't I just do whatever I want? Like, doesn't forgiveness mean I get to do whatever I want? And it's like they complain about salvation, like Jesus didn't do enough. And the reminder here is like, this is a huge problem. This is a huge problem to lose sight of what Jesus has done for us and what he's called us into in the church. Jude paints this picture of what can happen if we make our faith, if we make church all about ourselves. So Jude sometimes can be hard to read, but that's why we're breaking it up and looking at some of the solutions that we get because Jude doesn't leave us without solutions, right? God is merciful. He gives us a prescription and in verse 21, here's what we do about it. Here's what we do about this issue. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And at first it kind of seems like, wait a second, Jude, I, I thought, You started off the book with saying that, you know, God's the one who, like, gave you love, and he's the one who keeps you in his love. You know, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It almost seems like a contradiction there. Um, But Jude isn't contradicting anything in the scriptures here. He's saying that, yes, you are the one who's kept. Your faith is enabled by God, but you still must offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We still must bring ourselves before God by being obedient, being obedient to his focus and his purpose for us. Keeping ourselves in the love of God is actually something, especially when you look in like the upper room where Jesus was praying with his disciples. When you look at the book of first John, this is something Jesus talked about all over the place. Abide in me and I in you. And you abide in me when you obey my commands. My command is to love one another. You can find a dozen examples, but just one example. First John chapter four. He says, beloved, you guys, the church, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God because remember he talked about like, hey, if you can't love someone you see, it's going to be hard to love God. But no one's ever seen God. We should be able to love one another. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so we keep ourselves in the spigot of God's love, essentially, by loving one another, just as he commanded us. That we abide in his love, we're kept in his love when we love his body, the community of the church, his children, just one another. And this is the reason that Paul says 
I, I urge you, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And Paul is essentially arguing that the most logical response to all that God has done for you, to God saving you, is offering your bodies as a living sacrifice here. Because the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul basically lays out how salvation works, God's plan for redemption, how all that works. Then he gets to chapter 12 and he says, in regards to all that I just taught you, in regards to everything I just said, here's how you live in light of that. And that is that I urge you, I beg you, I want you to know that we must offer our bodies as a living sacrifice here. Your own gifted, talented, time-bound, breathing, some of you ripped bodies, offer that to God as a sacrifice. That the most valuable thing you have yourself, give that to God as a sacrifice. And he says, this is true and proper worship or a literal translation. He says, this is your logikos latreian. This is logical service. This is like the most rational worship you can do. This is the thing that would make most sense in light of God being the creator and God saving you. The most rational response to that is to say, God, I just give myself to you. I'm not looking for anything I can receive. I've received everything. Now I give myself to you and to the church, to the body. And I say to the church, because just three verses later, in verse 5 of Romans chapter 12, we see the context for this verse of offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. And Romans 12, we see, is all about being the body. And in verse 5, he tells us, essentially, hey, in light of all that, he says, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all others. So this is the context for giving yourself as a living sacrifice. And this is the importance of giving yourself as a living sacrifice is that we're part of the body. And the body needs all of us. I belong to you. You belong to me, right? We belong together. That I need you here with me. I need you in my life speaking from your gifts, your personalities, your passions there. You know, God has created you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, and he has equipped you with things that I don't have, that the person next to you doesn't have. And each and every one of us needs the other person to give themselves as a living sacrifice, right? This is the most reasonable act of worship that we could think of. This is the most logical thing to do, essentially. Um, That I am called to minister to you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, and each and every one of us is called to do that for one another, right? To not be people who are just thinking about ourselves, but to be contributing members of this body, to be other focused for the people next to us, right? That we all need to bring our giftings and our sparks and our passions and what we've been given to bless others, right? And I can bring my time to the church so that our church is awesome and that we're not just a church that talks about what we do, A lot of churches have great visions, great mission statements. And then you hear that and you go, that's cool, but what do you guys actually do? Um, And so we give our time to do that. And we give our money so that our church is awesome and we get to take care of one another, that when these things come up, we can help, we can be the body. We belong to all others. This is the purpose here. And this is the opposite of the self-centered Balaam idea. That was plaguing the church that Jude was writing to. That we we do all this because God has empowered us to love his people and he's commanded us to love one another. And I know then there's often pushback to be like, well, I don't need church. I am the church. Um, and so I'm just going to be the church at home or at the lake. Or when I'm at church, I'm thinking about my motorcycle. And so I'll just do the motorcycle instead of church. And that's, you know, where I'm the church. And I think we have to address that that's not how that works. <laughs> like, you are the church when you're with the church. Uh, my fingernail's part of my body right now. If it falls off, it's not part of the body, right? And we are not the church when we are, like, sitting at home in our jammies eating delicious sugary cereal. Um, that's the reality. Um, that we, a lot, of, a lot of churches have struggled with this because a lot of churches have really gone 
hard with having a really nice live stream. We've tried that, but it's not good enough, so that's uh, that's the benefit. Um, but a lot of churches have had struggles getting people not to just view church as like, yeah, I can sit at home in my jammies because I am the church. It's like, no, you you are the church when you're with the church. Otherwise, what we're called to be are these living stones built up into a spiritual house. And when you're at home in your jammies on your girl's couch eating cinnamon toast crunch, like you're not a living stone. You're a rolling stone just rolling around, not connected to anything. You're not building up anything. But the call, like in First Peter, is that you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, right? That we need one another. One stone's not a building. (laughs) One body part, not a body, right? But we're tempted to lose sight of that, make the focus all about ourselves over and over again. So we have to recognize that we need one another. We need one another. I need the Holy Spirit working in you in my life, and each and every one of us need that. Jesus reminded us that that prayer and God's presence is different when two or more are gathered in his name. We can pray alone all day. We must. But there's something different about when two or more are gathered. Because this is the way that the church is built up. This is his intent. This is his focus for the body. He built up in this house. And in Jude, these people were just looking for what they could get. That's not how the church is built. Looking for what is going to benefit the self, looking for the greediest things that we could do, isn't how the church is built. Do you know how the church is built? 1 Corinthians 14 tells us, read it. And better yet, I will read it to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, it says this, beginning verse 2. And this is Paul coming out of the love chapter, right? You know, chapter 13, all about love. Then he says, he begins this next chapter, pursue love, all that stuff talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. For For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people, speaks to others for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. Right? Or as it's often said with prophecy, it's to build up, stir up, and cheer up. Right? Build up, stir up, and cheer up. That's prophecy in the local church. Like, I'm going to stir you up in your faith. I'm going to encourage you in this. I'm going to build you up in your faith. I'm going to teach you um, and equip you. And and I'm going to cheer you up, you sad Eeyore, you little donkey. I'm going to cheer you up. Then he says in verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Which, hey man, that's great. Glad you're doing that. Glad you're speaking in tongues. Like when you speak in tongues, your faith is growing, right? Boy, do we need that. We'll cheer you on all day. But the one who prophesies builds up the church, not just themselves. Now, I want all of you to speak in tongues, Paul says, but even more to prophesy, right? No kidding, because everyone benefits. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets it. Why is that? So that the whole church may be built up. So Paul, he's talking about this, these spiritual practices here. And again, he's reminding them that like, hey, these are amazing things, prophecy, tongues. But we can get lost in the purpose of them. We can see the growth of interacting with the spirit in that way that it would make us think this is just all we want to do. We just want to continue to grow in our relationship with God over and over again for people who have the gift of tongues. And Paul is reminding them like, hey, just remember, it's not all about you. Just remember the rest of the body needs to be built up as well. Like it's good that you're built up, but it's even better that we build one another, right? Because this is the issue here, that we are called to be other focused. If we're kept in the love of God, then we're called to love one another, to obey his command, to lay down our lives for others and to live for the benefit of others. And I think that if we each, capture this heart that Jesus had, then whether people are in and out of our lives who maybe are brand new believers, the Holy Spirit just saved them, or if people have been following Jesus for their entire lives, I think they're able to see this. If we are using our gifts 
using our abilities, using our lives as a living sacrifice for God and for others, then they'll see that this is the way it's supposed to be, and, and this is life-transforming. Because I think we all know that, that the world is pretty bankrupt on love, right? The world is pretty bankrupt on being built up, stirred up, on encouragement. There's not a lot of faith in the world. There's not a lot of hope in the world. There's not a lot of love in the world, but the church is where we have faith, hope, and love, right? And so when the people of God have the right focus, this can be life-transforming. But when the people of God make things all about themselves, like Balaam, like all of these different similes and these examples from nature that Jude gave us, then we lose focus. We get completely off track. But I think if we're people who are grounded in the hope of the mercy of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, like Jude recommends here, then that's not going to happen. That we'll be a people of love to one another. We'll be a people who are for the good of others. We're glorifying God through the advancing of his kingdom. We're glorifying God through the extending of his family, right? That if we can resist this grumbling, resist the greed, resist the selfishness, but if we keep ourselves in the love of God, then this is what happens. And this is what happens. This is the hope that we have, and this is the purpose of the church. And so there's a reason that Jude uses like such intense language here that when the church, when these false teachers have lost sight of that, I mean, he goes after it hard because Jesus has commissioned us this great task. And he said it over and over again, abide in me by obeying my commands. Here's my command. Love one another as I've loved you. And I think we're able to do this, keep ourselves in the love of God. We'll be on the right track, be the people that God has called us to be. Because he has given us everything. And so I don't think we have to have the scarcity idea of looking out for ourselves, but we can trust in the one who saved us, has called us, he's kept us, that he will supply all of our needs over and above what we could have. And so we can then in turn focus on the blessing, the encouragement, the building up, the stirring up, the cheering up of one another. And so now, I would say the best response for us to do is to worship. To thank Jesus for making sure that he took care of absolutely everything so that we could have this other focus. And so would you please bow your heads and let's pray and we'll respond to him in worship. So Jesus, uh, we just pause and we repent of the many times in which we have just made salvation and what you've done all about ourselves would you help us to see your children around us help us not to fall into the error of balaam of just looking at how we can gain and benefit at the expense of others help us to see these these harsh words in jude not as reason to to be feel guilty or ashamed uh, but to see this as something to to wake us up and to stir in us a faith that follows hard after you, and that is loving others as you've loved us. God, would you just encourage each and every one of us with the, the possibilities of you working through us to others. God, help us to see the needs of those around us. Often, many of us, we, we are struggling in this life. There are things that are capturing our worry, capturing our focus. God, help me to just hand that over to you, that I may be someone who, who others can go to and help them with theirs. God, that that works because you know, we know that you've taken everything, taken all of our burdens on yourself. Just remind me of that. So now God, we just turn to you in praise, just thanking you for all that you've done for us. And I'm asking that your spirit would continue to work in us to give us a heart not bent in towards ourselves, but is fully focused on you fully focused on your people and your mission. So Jesus, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
First John chapter 3, if our hearts do not condemn us, some of us might feel that conviction and it's good to lean into that, but if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and we receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. So Common Ground Church, thank you for being here. Grace and peace. Have a wonderful week.